Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Awesome. Another exciting uh, episode of the Few Podcast. And I don't know what it's like where you are up in sunny Queensland, uh, Sean. Beautiful one day, perfect the next. But uh, here in Sydney, it's freezing. Freezing. It's a cold snap. Polar vortex has uh, hit the eastern seaboard uh, of Australia. And you've just been in Darwin too, haven't you? I have might have been there for 18 days, so coming back here, it's like, oh, it's a bit chilly here, and I think it's 24 today, so I guess you're acclimatised to different places where you are quite quickly. Uh, yeah, and, I, and as I was driving in today to the studio for our next guest, I started to kind of run one of those, oh, change perspective, because our guest today, he, probably a little bit colder where he is compared to where we are right now, and seven and a half degrees is a cold morning in Sydney, is probably just a, your average summer's day. Uh, so look, let's, I think it's uh, it's time to introduce our next guest, direct from Macquarie Island, down near uh, Antarctica, is Derek Stevens, the station manager, the the head honcho, the boss. Derek, g'day, mate. Thanks so much for being on the few podcasts with okay. Sean and I today. Thank you for the invitation. You know, I'm very passionate about what I do down here, so I'm excited about having a chat and sort of giving you a bit of an insight about life down here and what we do and how you get there. So, so where does seven and a half degrees fit in on an average day down in Macquarie Island? Yeah, so I was out on Monday. So we just had a long weekend. So I went out for a, you know, a little sort of wander and a bit of a walk on Monday. And it was, I think it was about four degrees and not much wind. And, that, and I was stinking hot. So I was sweating sort of walking around in my, in my gear while I was, I was waiting for a bit of wind or a bit of cold weather to, to come. So um, you get a different perspective down here. So for, yeah, four or five degrees, definitely walk around. Oh, the cold day is probably around zero. Like we're surrounded by ocean, you know, we're not on the ice. So, so for us, anything around zero, but it's the wind. Yeah. We're in the furious 50s zone down here. So the winds do smash into us. So it, it's the wind chill at a cold day, which really makes a difference. So, so sort of minus 10 with wind chill would probably be a pretty cold day for us. Awesome. So I guess the first question that came to mind uh, when we heard that we were going to jump onto the podcast was why? What was it that made your decision to go and invest a year of your life down on Macquarie Island? I did have a think about that because I thought, oh, what's the first question that always someone asks? And they always ask, why the hell do you go and move away from your friends and family and life for a, for a year for arbitrarily a fairly random thing to do? And, and for me, like that desire has always been there. I can't really say why. This has been pottering around in the back of my mind for at least 10 to 15 years and I think the real reason is just because the uniqueness of the opportunity it's just one of those things in life where it's just completely different completely out of the mainstream and you just get to immerse yourself in something that's completely different and wild and and so thoroughly and engaging and enjoyable it's pretty pretty left field if you think about it isn't it yeah it is and there's not that many people that do it you know like yeah there's quite quite a few Antarctic stations from different countries around the world but in reality is we're talking about probably 
hundreds of people that do this every year across the world. It's not a significant number. And, you know, over the years, you know, Australia's had a station here at Macquarie Island ever since 1948. So we're the 74th year of operation and only talking about a relatively small, in the, the low thousands of people over that sort of 75-year time frame who have experienced it. How many people are there? There's a team of 16 here over winter. The, the populations generally vary quite different over the winter and summer. Summer is when you get a big influx of, of scientists and other people doing various work, but the core crew are those that do the 12 months or what, we, what we'd call winterers. 16. God, can you imagine? I mean, I, I went to the Falkland Islands for six weeks. And there's, you know, there's like a thousand people there. And even even then, you got kind of sick of everyone after six weeks. We're talking about the few here. So we're talking about small individuals that are doing things that no one else does. So you're kind of unique. But then on top yeah. of that, you're running this really small team in an incredibly isolated place. And I'd imagine guys like Elon Musk would be looking down there and saying, oh, what's it like living in a small, isolated place? What are some of the challenges as a leader when running a small, remote team, both in terms of you know work, but equally all the social elements of it. Because it's not like you just you get in your snow buggy and, and go home at the end of the day, right? You work and live and, and cohabitate. There must be some really unique challenges there. Look, the primary challenge of the environment is that those that you work with are also those that you live with and also those that you socialize with and you can't get away from each other. And once you're there, you're there. You know, the ship drops you off and you get a kiss on the cheek and waves goodbye and it says, we'll see you in a year or so. Do a good job and have a good year. So it's implicit with everyone that comes down. And obviously we go through a very extensive selection process, which is, you know, is somewhat aligned with what you'd expect with sort of a space program particularly in terms of its medical and other sort of psychological sort of assessment criteria, that it's implicit that people are buying into that small community and living in a place where there's high degrees of tolerance, patience, trust, and a willingness to work towards developing a community that is based on very solid values and behaviours where you do work together, you do make compromises, and you accept that you you want to live in this sort of close environment. Now, architecting that is a different process because, you know, when the people turn up, no one knows each other. Four weeks before we sailed down here, the majority of people hadn't met each other, hadn't worked together. You don't really know that person that well. As the station leader, your primary role is to facilitate the environment in which people can get to know each other and build trust and cooperate and work together. And it's a, it's a very subtle process. It's quite different to leadership in business. It's very much a community-led and you're fostering the environment where the community can think about and, and make good decisions for itself about how it wants to live and work. So what's some of the biggest challenges you've faced then in that environment? So it's obviously the situation of personality clashes or value misalignments and feeling isolated and, as you said, Boo, getting a bit sick of each other maybe at some times. What, what's, what's the biggest challenge you've found and, and how have you addressed that as a leader? Some of these things, I, I will be cautious in how I uh, speak because some of these things actually, some of these things are real life and they actually sort of are happening, are happening now. And some of these things just aren't for public discussion. The reality is, you know, I mean, a simplistic value. You know, you do have people who hard times happen whilst they're away. You know, like people get sick, people get cancer, family members die, or something happens. So the reality is, people's lives keeps moving whilst they're down here and. And it's part of that whilst you're there that sometimes some fairly serious things can happen at home and you're in a place where you can't 
affect that. So that obviously affects people's health and well-being and their mental health. Some people, again, in a worst case scenario, some people think they're right, they look like they're assessed, but they struggle with the remoteness. And I would say sort of managing all those various well-being aspects in terms of people's mental health and, and well-being is the biggest challenges so that when relatively minor things can appear to be a major setback for someone. So it's helping people keep that perspective of understanding what's important, what's not important, recognising why they're here. And it's about establishing individual relationships with everyone. So you understand that person, you understand what their drivers are, you understand what their triggers are, so that when someone's having a hard time, A, you can try and anticipate it and prevent it and put the mechanisms in in place to, to solve that. So look, 99% 99% of what I do is preventative. You know, it's about looking at things and looking at the way the mood of the community and individuals are moving and seeing what adjustments or things need to be made and then doing that in a subtle way so it's not, you know, it's not a place for steep corrections or changes. It's so that it sort of becomes part of the flow of life. What does a week look like down there? Are you on Monday to Friday kind of organisation or is it just a constant blend of personal life and, and work. And I'd imagine some of the work down there is just mind-blowing in, in terms of what you see, what's around you. The isolation in itself must be a kind of nice thing compared to the hustle and bustle. So what, is, what does an average week look like for you as a team? Look, we're people with normal jobs in an extraordinary place. So of that population of 16, if you can imagine a small village, there's sort of one of everyone. There's a chef, there's a doctor, there's a sparky, there's a couple of chippies, there's plumbers, there's all those people that you need to, to make sure everything works and everything's safe. And we have a relatively normal day. Yeah, we start work at 7.30. Um, majority of the work we do is maintenance. The workforce over winter is a predominantly a trades-based team. And most of the work they're doing is facility maintenance. It's a pretty harsh environment. So it's just keeping the place ticking over and going. But amongst that, you know, there's some fairly interesting opportunities. So, you know, we're living on a place that is essentially the Galapagos of the, the sub-Antarctic. So we're, we literally live amongst millions of breeding sub-Antarctic animals, seals, penguins, you know, whales, all sorts of birds, take your pick at it. So there's a whole bunch of sort of science projects that are ongoing to monitor both the environment and the wildlife down here. And there's the opportunities for people to participate in, you know, be helpers with the scientists and the rangers and those sorts of things. And the reality is you just observe it. It's just, it's outside your door. There's so much of it. You sort of, you know, you walk to work, you can barely stop yourself from kicking a penguin as you walk past. They're everywhere. Um, <laughs> by, accident. by accident, yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes someone can't get out of the door of their room because an elephant seal's decided to go to sleep on that door. So they need to find a different way out. So it's these fairly random yop, uh, things which... Yeah, which, which to us, yeah, which to us, they, you know, they, it normalizes very quickly. So the environment here normalizes very quickly. You just get used to it. But you, know, you have to sort of step your mind back to a few months when you first arrived and it sort of blew your mind as you um, as arrived. And there's a, I look like a regale for ages of some of, the, some of the things you see here, which are just off the charts. Yeah, I thought it was entertaining when you said just before we started the recording that uh, I just look out the window and there's penguins and seals and stuff. It's, like, it's such a different context that uh, unless you experience it i guess you know it's something kind of surreal in a way so another question that's come up for me is i assume that you've had a bit of a an adventurous spirit to sort of live outside the box and do you know other things now what maybe gives a little bit of an insight into some of the 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 background that you've had in relation to doing i suppose adventurous things or things that are slightly different and, and that only the few actually choose to do 
Yeah, so for me, I've always been motivated by sort of travel or exploration, sort of not so much to an extreme level, but just something that's, you know, that see me sort of live and work and overseas in different countries. Like home for me is New Zealand. I'm Australian, but I've sort of lived in New Zealand for the last eight years where my partner and I sort of live rurally on a block where we've, we've always had the dream of off the grid sort of sustainable style living. So we've built a life for us there where we, we do that. And look, I've traveled a lot and I've sort of started life in the army, you know, and, and the army sort of took me all over the place. But I'd sort of followed my, my nose. I had an extensive period living and working in, in Asia where I've worked and traveled from Pakistan across from Japan, now sort of down to Macquarie Island and sort of most countries in between. So those sort of desires to just keep expanding my horizons has been a big motivator. So how do you manage that, mate? There's clearly a lot of expectation management. You know, you're living a dream, you're, you're having these opportunities. How do you maintain a relationship and how does everyone down there stay connected with the real world? And do you find over time it's a challenge to stay connected? Yeah, it definitely is. Like the reality is the majority of the people that work in this life are single, regardless of, of age. So it does to some extent self-select and also in terms of age groups, you generally tend to get people who say are a a bit younger, say late 20s, early 30s or 50s. There's not too many in the age where people have got kids and young families. So the population does sort of spread itself around where people are in life. But there are people here who've got wives, families and all that sort of stuff. And we're very lucky. It's got good communications, like, like the way we're speaking here on this and WhatsApp. And it does require the relationship to be in a pretty good condition and you need to keep investing in that whilst you're here. It's not the place to escape to if your relationship had been having a few troubles or difficulties. Any year down here is certainly not going to improve it. Yeah, I think you must you must have a very understanding partner if you're like, hey, honey, I'm uh, going to go away and live on a remote island with 15 other people for a year. <laughs> it's, uh, that's uh, something positive. But how do you guys maintain really good quality communication or what do you find is the basis for, for sustaining that at distance? Initially, it was very strong support. So it was sort of, we're operating from a very clear basis of understanding of the way we want to live and what our dreams and aspirations are. And Hazel, my partner, was very understanding that she knew this had been a a long-term goal of mine and was very supportive in doing that. But the the main thing for us is communication. Like the reality is separation is hard. There's actually nothing that sort of makes it easy. It's just about we talk every day. I stay very engaged in our life back at home. So I know what's going on. And as much as possible, she starts to understand what day-to-day life is here, what people's names are. So we're still try to maintain as much normality as we can between I know what's going on in her, in her life. She knows what's going on in my life. And we maintain that level of communication, even through the, you know, the times when there's a few rough days, just so we're still providing that level of support. Makes you think about how tough it would have been 20, 30 plus years ago because you said that that station's been there for 74 years. People not having ability to communicate at all externally using technology, that would have just made it exponentially more more challenging and more difficult. I think it was just, you know, back in those days, hard, hard people, hard families, hard lives, you know, none of this first world stuff. So Derek, obviously you're one of the few that's living those life dream. I mean, there's, there's only a few station commanders around. What was the process like? And what did you have to do to land this job? Obviously, you didn't go, oh, look, seek.com uh, looking for a station commander. I'm going to whack my CV in. And four weeks later, you're on board and away you go. What, what was involved in achieving the dream? It ends up being about a six-month-long process. 
they get quite a significant amount of applications and applications are only open every two years. And initially, it just goes through any other process. There's a paper cut and a, a phone interview and they try and shortlist down to about 50 odd people. They then have a series of residential selection activities. And as the station leader, the first one you go through is with all expeditioners. So it's chefs, carpenters, plumbers, station leaders, everyone in together. And that's a 24-hour activity, which is residential-based. And it's probably around a lot of scenario-based discussions around some of the trickier sort of aspects that you might have around here, just to see where people's values and culture, how they work in a team, how they communicate, how they manage conflict as, as a normal expedition that, that's the end of the road for you if you make it through that you're then selected and then there's sort of technical assessment for the station leaders the numbers are then culled down to another sort of 15 or 20 and then there's basically a week-long similar activity for about a week in Hobart where it's just a much more extensive and in-depth sort of version in in that with some activities indoors some activities outdoors team-based individual-based just really trying to get a good understanding of how you think and how you work and how you lead. Uh, and also that's done in an, in an area with of very high uncertainty. So you don't get any feedback. You, know, you don't know how you're going. There's no feedback, positive, negative. It's just purely you're just there and you see how you go. And at the end, it's literally at, at the end, you're either you go to the bus where you passed or you go to the bus where you didn't pass. And those that pass, you go through some more discussions and in parallel to that there's medical and psychological and tests so it's pretty extensive very cool i remember now when i was 17 18 going through that process and it's quite unsettling you're in the moment and it's over and it's next thing next thing and you just watch as the room whittles away even when you win you're like or you get in you're like that was a really (laughs) unsatisfactory win it's like you just become that person Look, my biggest observation through the process, and I probably one of the biggest differentiators, was the people's ability to deal with uncertainty. And that was the main thing, because to some extent you're going down here, it's a, sure, there's frameworks and there's rules and systems processes and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is there's a lot of variables in the people and the environment and the way it changes. And you're operating on your own. Like if something goes wrong, you know, there's no one coming to help you. You're, you're reasonably isolated down here. If you have a heart attack or break a leg, what happens? Well, we've got a doctor, we've got a medical facility and all that sort of stuff. So all, all that basic level of stuff. Look, we try to risk manage a lot of that sort of stuff. You risk manage a lot of the health stuff out through extremely extensive medical testing that is very much aligned with what you'd expect to see with, say, an astronaut going to space for an extended period. Because, you know, if you've got a winter in Antarctica, you may as well be on the moon. You're a long, long way away from anything. And then also just with our systems and practices, we, we, we run a pretty low risk organization down here in terms of the way we work and the way we do things. So that's the primary means, but sometimes things go wrong and got a lot of resources and systems down here. Obviously, Derek, you've, um, you're a leader of a small team down there, and that is the same for most businesses. Businesses don't run themselves. There's people involved, and uh, you know, and a big business has a, has a big leadership team. And one thing I've observed working in that space, in the corporate space for about six years, is there's an aversion to having critical conversations, or there's a bit of a personality clash, and it might take years before that's resolved. And a year, you don't, you don't have that sort of time. So what would be your sort of top two or three tips you'd give to a leader to manage some of those emotional elements of a team? It's a really good question. And it's also very topical because down here, I'd say we still haven't fully got it nailed. One of the biggest barriers to that is that I think people have a perception that uh, one of the qualities in an effective team is a lack of conflict. And to some extent here is is one of the issues where people will 
bury grievances or bury issues and that sort of stuff and not communicate them, which is not healthy. And that's one of the areas that often does create problems in the future. To some extent, you sort of lay your own landmines for the future by sort of not flushing this stuff out and having it. So in terms of characteristics, which I think would be best practice, I think the first one is to manage expectations, is to people understand what actually a good team looks like, how a good team performs, and what productive conflict looks like. Secondly, to actually make that work is that there needs to be a very high level of trust between the individuals. So all the activities you do through your team building and the way you work is to be constantly sort of building upon those layers of trust. So there's a level of trust there that when people do want to have a difficult conversation or do have those discussions, you know, they actually feel that they can do that and the person's got their best interests in mind. And then and then lastly, you need to give people the tools to have those discussions. They're not easy discussions for anyone, regardless of your experience or or where you're from. So it's correct giving people the the tools and the techniques by which they can sort of start that difficult conversation and then have it without triggering a negative response from the other person. So they're actually sitting there going, actually, that's great. I actually, thank you for bringing that point up. It's actually really relevant and, and using that feedback as, you know, as gold rather than you know, a spear being thrown at you. In extension of that, obviously, I totally, totally agree with that thing is that people start to bottle it up. It comes out much more charged when it finally does come out. So clearly you've got a strong understanding of, of uh, you know, leadership, of how people tick from a psychology perspective and communication, things like that. Who was it that inspired you throughout your life to move in towards or inspired you to become the leader that you are today? I would look say there's an accidental element. My background is I'm a generalist. You know, like I'm not an engineer or I'm not a scientist or something like that. I, you know, I went to the Australian Defence Force Can I just, oh, Can I we unpack that? that? This is the first time on a few podcasts I've heard the word, I'm a generalist. And I've got a, a really great mate that we always used to talk about this role of the generalist. Yeah. That's great. I think it's one of the least valued but most important type of leader is a generalist. Yeah. So what's a generalist? Why don't you build on that for us? Look, if I had to describe myself, if I was going to work somewhere or do something, what differentiates me is the one, I can lead change and two, I can build teams and the two go together. And I've, I've worked across quite a few different industries now, either between the military or engineering and construction is where I've spent most of my time, but I've sort of I've worked in defense, I've worked in security, I've worked in pharmaceuticals, oil and gas construction, and now in this sort of Antarctic environment. I've found the core skills you need to be successful at its sort of management are all very similar. The technical aspect of the problems you're trying to solve are different, but I think the bit that's missing and the bit that's least common in people that are working is that ability to easily define a problem or at least help a group define what a problem is, talk through what the different options are of how to solve it and go through sort of some structured decision-making process by which you can sort of solve a problem, get everyone together, focus on it, and keep going. And I think that it's a generic skill set, but it's not one that's easy to teach. You sort of learn it over time. Sure, I had some skills in it 20 years ago, but it's something you keep getting better at over and over as you go. And it's the same with like leadership. You never suddenly become a leader. You know, you've sort of, sure, you're in roles where you've got uh, leadership responsibility or your management in your title, but it's actually something you keep on learning and building. And certainly in my view, if you think if you're going to be good at it, you're constantly sort of unpacking and looking at how can I learn a bit more? How can I do it a bit differently? What did I learn from that last job? What do I take on to the next one? And it's a, it's that constant cycle of learning, which for me is really, really enjoyable. 
I think I have to agree with that, Derek. The the myself also. I'm a generalist. I don't have a specialist. I'm not a specialist in anything. I don't have a uni degree or anything like that. Everything's come from those experiences that I've had moving through different industries, having different businesses. You know, moving into more of a you know into the mentoring space and changing that based on where I felt I needed to go. One of the things that I've seen, I guess, from a general perspective, and I'll get your take take on this too. It's almost like once you become very strong at that more general approach it's like i can see things that other people can't see it's almost like my vision is wider whereas a specialist can see deeper do you feel that as well yeah definitely like the phrase i use is like being able to look around corners it's that you know as you build more and more of that experience you've sort of you know that ability to try and see the future or what the potential future options are depending on which course of action you take and like you say if, if you've got a more technical or sort of more problem solved issue you, know, you focus on the particular issue that's in front of you whereas i suppose i try to take a position where i'm more focused on the bigger picture the strategy and also the relationships and whether that's in an environment like this or whether that's in business and you're working with clients and suppliers and customers you're sort of i'm sort of looking at the human dynamic and how that works and where we want to get to and then you know you're manipulating the variables within that to try and support that bigger goal and it's important for the generous listening to this podcast, and I've felt that in the past too, is that it's almost like you know a specialist has a higher value. Well, they might have a higher value in that specialty, but a generalist has a higher value strategically, I believe. No, I was just going to say as a generalist as well, if you're a really good generalist, it's like you almost have nothing to do. Because you've built a great plan, you're, you're on top of things, everything's moving in sync. And I think whereas a specialist or, or a technical person is always busy because they're, they're fixing something or delivering something. There's like there's work to do. So I always find as a generalist, as one myself, that there's sometimes you're like, should I be doing something right now? And, and it's those moments where you should be saying, actually, I'm, doing, this is, I'm obviously doing an okay job right now because no one's screaming, nothing's broken, everything's working in harmony. And you become a little bit of a a sine wave type of man- effort curve, whereas it just seems to all go wrong real quick. And then you've got to, got to unpack it, problem solve yeah. it, fix it. And then you go back into that sort of ebb mode where you can just look out the window and count penguins. Oh, look, and I, like, I 100% agree with you, mate. And look, I described my view perfectly. And, and to some extent, I enjoy that ebb and flow of like, like I enjoy the peaks and the troughs, you know, like you enjoy the energy that comes from the peaks when you sort of build something up and then you're rewarded by the trough. But the, the reality is, say you've got a team of, 20 people or whatever it is, you're working out how to generate each week 800 hours of productive work from that team. I see lots of managers as the, they get, they just get busier and busier themselves and they're suddenly churning out 70 or 80 hours a week and the, the overall team's productivity is going downwards. You know, they're sort of going nuts trying to solve with their problems rather than sitting back and taking the time and work out how do I get everyone working rather than just constantly spinning the wheel faster myself because, you know, whether you're doing 70 hours or 80 hours, law of diminishing returns kicks in pretty quickly. Whereas, the law of returns, if you manage to get an extra 5% out of 20 or 30 or 100, or, you know, this scales up pretty quickly, you know, working out how to get a little bit more value out of the team collectively, the, the benefits are massive. And Derek, when you're a generalist and as you're trucking through life, at, at what point did you kind of have strength in your conviction as a leader? Like when did you kind of think, you know what, I, I'm actually a leader and I'm reasonably effective at this? Was there sort of this, this moment or transition or you just, it just kind of happened? Oh, look, I think it's built up over time. It's been a combination of my, you know, my own efforts and desires, but I also have been the benefit of I've had some very good coaching and training in over the time, and I've worked in some really good organisations and worked with some really good people. So I'd, I'd say like I've generally been 
lucky that the majority of things I've done have been like a really positive experience and I've sort of learned something that's going forward. I would say I probably started really thinking that this is what I do and I've, my style became more mature well, probably about 10 years or so ago. One thing I picked up early, I mean, I, I, mean, I, found, sorry, I found the same journey you know, in my leadership journey was it just evolved to that. It wasn't like a, a sudden light bulb. Or it was like eventually realising that, huh, I'm actually not too bad at this now, whereas I used to suck at it. I used to not want to have those conversations with Bill because it made me feel uncomfortable. Well, now I'm having them despite feeling uncomfortable and having those conversations anyway. I'm going to shift a little bit. There's something that you said earlier that's been kind of buzzing around in my head, which I, I thought was a little bit entertaining. I said about you being adventurous and you said, oh, nothing too extreme. And I'm like, well, living in for a year in one of the most remote places on earth with like 16 or so people or maybe a few more in the summer, to me, it's about perspective. Like for you, that may not seem very extreme. For me, that's incredibly extreme. And I'm sure a lot of other people would think that. So taking your perspective into account, this is, as you said, you've, you've had this as a bit of a goal, a bit of a bit of a dream for some time. You're now living that at the moment. I think you said you were three months in of the 12 months, approximate 12 month stint. What's next then? What other things are on that list? If this is not that extreme, are they more extreme? Are they similar? Like what other goals and aspirations do you have beyond Quarry Island? So this is my first job working with the Antarctic team, and I like it. I like the place. So I'd, the future, I, I think, would see myself doing more of this. I'm sure my partner, Hazel, won't be listening, so I won't send her the link to the podcast. So we'll, we're yet to discuss that. But the reality is once you've sort of got an opportunity like this and done this sort of work, it does create other opportunities. I'd probably be just be looking for things that are a shorter time frame. In the short term, really, my goals are – to really get back into our, our lifestyle and our property where you know we grow our food and have animals and do all these sorts of things. And what I like, I'm not sure if you've ever read anything from Alice Humphreys, who pioneered this little term called micro-adventures. And it's sort of acknowledging that a lot of people out there, that people feel that adventure is something that you have to go, you, know, you have to climb Everest or you have to cross the Antarctica solo and unsupported or something. And it's, it's something that makes it out of touch for the majority of people but sort of and Alistair Humphrey is one of these fellows you know he's cycled across the world and done all these big things but he's sort of he's become a parent and he's got a relationship and he got a job and got all these sorts of things and he sort of creates little what I call achievable adventures are things you can do at a weekend things you can do locally things you can do nearby where you can still live an adventurous life but just doing things that are smaller bite-sized chunks that are close to home and and achievable and 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 yeah I, I just want to do a lot of those sorts of things because doing that regularly it's like taking a bit of medicine so finding in lots of those a lot of those i do do with my partner and and that's what really drives a lot of happiness in my life yeah and you sound like a very buoyant very positive person in your core what is it that keeps you motivated what gets you up in the morning keeps you motivated particularly when you're in an environment like you're in at the moment obviously having that strong sense of intrinsic motivation is very very important what is it that drives that for you i think gratitude is a very powerful emotion and an incentive we get a bunch of choices every day with how we work and how we live and waking up every day and making that choice of like yeah today's going to be a good day i'm in an amazing place and i'm doing really good things and that straight away just sort of sets your mindset in the right frame to tackle away in a positive manner And and the same thing with the you know with the team here I'm the Minister of Smiles and I'm the Minister of Communication. I've got a whole bunch of other jobs. Yeah, I've got a Minister of Energy and a Minister of all these other sort of people that sort of do stuff to make the place work. But my 
role is to provide a positive bias and keep everyone happy and smiling and working in the in the same direction. Just exploring that as well, Derek, you're a positive guy, Minister of Smiles. Any major events in life that kind of provided that other side of the spectrum where you had to demonstrate that resilience and pick yourself up? I would say the personal event, which probably caused me the most grief, which I flip side I learned the most from was, was going through a separation and divorce. And this was more than 15 odd years ago. After I left the uh, military, I joined a British multinational called Smith's and sort of pretty quickly moved from Sydney to Singapore and probably got promoted a little bit too quickly. So I was sort of in my early 30s. I was a regional vice president living in Singapore, traveling all over the world and had a really busy life. And at the same time, but only just recently been married and I struggled to keep it all together in terms of I had this super stimulating professional life and great job. I was working with all my mates you know, in a really growing industry, but at the same time, trying to juggle that with my personal life and have good relationships and everything else, I, I didn't find that balance. And so when that came apart, that put quite a big personal shock on me. I took that quite hard. To get through that, I went and did a bit of counselling and a bit of soul searching. The main thing I learned from the, from the counselling was just to focus on what you can control. It sort of just clicked and I was like, ah, oh, shit. It's actually not about the other person. It's not about the environment. It's about me. It's just about how I can think and how I can control. And yes, your personality is your personality, but you can control your behaviors. You control your way you think. And that really changed me. And then after that, I actually took a change of direction. I sort of said, well, actually, as much as externally, this sort of life I'm doing is giving a lot of external pleasure and motivation. I had to be honest, I wasn't really enjoying myself. So I took a year off and traveled the world. I spent a few months volunteering for an English charity in Borneo, where I was sort of an outdoors guide. And that's where I met my current partner. And since then, life has just been exponentially better. And that relationship has been, a, I suppose, the core of my happiness for 15 odd years. And that's provided such a strong foundation to the rest of my life. It's just been brilliant. And interesting that you made that decision, mate, to go from you know, I know Smith's and they're a big company and it's an exciting life and a lot yep. of money floating around and you stay in there long enough, you're going to have yep. a big house somewhere and a boat and a car and all the good stuff. So clearly in there, you made the decision. And this is an area I think you and I both love, Sean, is the few decide success looks very personal to them and it's always different. It's not all about money. So from an emotional perspective and a purposeful perspective, how important was that change? Look, it was really important because just the Look, the year off, again, I sort of was, it just gave me the something. I'd had these little triggers of things I wanted to do. Like, I really just wanted to have some time myself. I wanted to travel. I wanted to take a year off. I wanted to have no responsibilities. I wanted to just have fun because to some extent, I'd left school, joined the army, gone to university, done training, followed jobs. It always sort of followed my nose from job to job to job. And sort of the job was the, the focus. And at that time, when I did that, I was about 35. And I just really wanted to take some time out for me. Did that. And then look, when I came, I, Came back to serious jobs. I was working at big companies like you know Raytheon and managing a couple hundred million dollar projects and other things. And certainly there was re-injected plenty of professional stimulation and stress back into my life. But my mindset was a lot different of how to tackle that. And I sort of prioritized my personal life and my personal relationships. And they always came first. And I worked everything else around that. And within that context, yeah, you don't get balance every day. Your balance is something you achieve over time, but it was done in a in a measured and considered way. And it was in an agreed way that, yeah, okay, well, the next couple of months are going to be really busy. We're going to sacrifice some personal aspects whilst I work really hard. But then the flip side after that, we're going to 
do something else. And it was the same thing. My, you know, it was a, a trade-off with my partner as well with things she wanted to achieve. We just made that process conscious and it became part of our life. And we both sort of agreed with, you know, because we had clarity of where we wanted to go, how it all fit together into a bigger life picture. Mm, that's amazing. And clearly you've had a very, very varied and, you know, colourful life as, as many people have in different ways and, and <clears throat> learning things through relationships and through different, you know, soul searching and all that sort of stuff. Through all of that, if you could take one of the core lessons or even more than one, if you think there's, there's more that are powerful enough and go back to a younger version of yourself and pass that lesson on, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? I think the first one is have the courage to be who you are. When you're young, you've got that, all these various pressures. You're trying to be someone else or project an image or do something like that. The courage to actually sort of accept this is who I am and this is my personality and this is what I like and this is what I, what I don't like and be true to that is hard. And I think when you're sort of helping with young people, it's how to give people the confidence to, to go through that process and do that. Secondly, I think just keep investing in relationships, whether that's relationships with family or friends or others or acquaintances is just that continual investment in people and relationships and giving to others the way you'd like to be given to yourself is a major investment that will always pay you back through your rest of your life. And I think thirdly is just have a bit of a vision for where, you know, your life. You talked about a few people having a different idea of success isn't the same for everyone. And that's true. You know, not everyone's going to be Elon Musk or something like that. But just because you've got different goals or lower level goals or something like that doesn't mean they're not fantastic and doesn't mean they're not right for your life. So spend a bit of time investing about what's the vision for a really good life for you and then, and then go after that. Mm-hmm. Boo, there's so many common themes when we ask those questions. Uh, always ends up coming back to being yourself. It's like, yep, there it is again. And, and it's so true. And for Sean and I, uh, Derek, this is a selfish indulgence, this podcast, to be honest, because having the opportunity to speak with people like yourself and hear those stories and having so many uh, of the adventures and experiences you have resonate with our personal lives, but also with the lives of, of the other people we have here. So, mate, that really insightful. You are doing a dream job down there. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Thanks so much, Derek, for taking the, the time out of your uh, penguin watching and uh, seal herding uh, to, to share life on Macquarie Island on the fringe of Antarctica there. It's been really insightful. Uh, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Boo. Really enjoyable um, experience and I appreciate the time and thanks for hooking me up and having a chat. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one 
of the few. We'll see you next week.